Don't you just love hearing missionary stories? Don't you love hearing that uh, the Lord is doing work beyond anything that we can think or imagine? Do you know what the fastest growing church in the world is per capita? It's the church in Iran. You know what the second fastest growing church in the world is per capita? It's the church in Saudi Arabia. Isn't that astonishing? That should so deeply encourage us and also remind us uh, that all of the trouble with the lazy boy and the ice maker <clears throat> should not deter us from seeing what it is that the Lord is doing. Yes, we have fierce battles ahead on the front of our families, marriage, uh, the, 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 the horror of the abortion genocide in our time is the shame of the American church. Yes, these things are true, but God is at work. He's raising up a faithful, young, new generation to go forth and do the works of the Lord, and uh, we have much to be hopeful for. And it's not because of the composition of the Supreme Court. It's because of the volunteers in a little storefront and a little crisis pregnancy center who are faithfully day after day proclaiming the truth of the gospel. It's because God is raising up a mighty army and he is sending it to the ends of the earth. That's hopeful. Let's pray as we... um, as we tackle this last session, I'm going to, again, uh, tell a story from church history. It's a story that you may have heard before, but I want to tell it with a twist. And, uh, and then we're going to take a look at Psalm 87, uh, this glorious picture of the kingdom. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I do pray uh, that you would open our eyes Uh, clearly to the works that you are doing even now in the midst of this poor fallen world. Oh, Savior of the world, uh, come and grip our hearts and send us forth uh, with your word and with your authority. For we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. In the 13th century, uh, the city of Venice ruled Eastern Mediterranean. It had become a thriving imperial and commercial power uh, overshadowing even the once indomitable uh, Byzantines, its sailors, traders, merchants, and uh, its uh, explorers uh, reached to the furthest reaches of civilization, bringing back uh, exotic spices, exquisite fabrics, and extraordinary wealth. Uh, They brought back remarkable stories of heretofore unknown lands, peoples, and cultures uh, throughout Central Asia. Of all the Venetian merchants of that day, none traveled more widely or with more enduring impact than Marco Polo. Uh, The tales he told were almost too incredible to believe. While most of Europe remained rather primitive and provincial, 
he described dazzling empires with resplendent palaces and gardens and vast invincible armies, lavish festivals and feasts, complex networks of governance and highways and trade. He claimed to have witnessed these resplendent fantasies firsthand during a quarter century long odyssey beginning in 1271. It had been a fabulous expedition that took him through more than 5,000 miles of the vast Central Asian domains of the Mongol ruler Kublai Khan. At the disastrous Battle of Kursola, In 1298, the old sea rival Genoa decimated the Venetian fleet. Polo, who financed his own war galley, as was the Venetian custom, was captured and held in the Genoese prison of San Giorgio. In the tedium of his year-long internment, he began to tell Uh, his uh, stories. He began to regale his fellow prisoners uh, with his grand adventures. Most dismissed the stories as uh, the fairy tale conceits of a vainglorious merchant. But Rusticello of Pisa, a a writer of chivalric romances and Arthurian chapbooks, took the stories down in French, then the Franca of contemporary Europe. And upon their release, Rusticello translated the narrative into Latin and vernacular Italian and had it published as Marco Polo's description of the world. The book's impact was immediate. It stirred a fresh appetite for the wealth of the East and influenced exploration and trade for centuries. Indeed, men like Bartholomew Diaz, Vasco da Gama, and Ferdinand Magellan would point to it as one of their seminal inspirations. And in 1492, when Christopher Columbus set sail for the New World, he took with him a heavily annotated copy of the book, hoping to find China. Not only did Polo's descriptions survey all the wonders of Central Asia's diverse peoples and cultures, it also detailed uh, the practices of its myriads of thriving religious communities, from Zoroastrianism, Hindu and Buddhist temples, uh, to Shia, Sunni, and Sufi mosques, from Jewish synagogues, yeshivas, and kahelas, uh, to Christian churches, monasteries, and abbeys. That, that all these wildly divergent faiths and practices could somehow peacefully coexist in the Mongol realm, stretching from the South China Sea across the Silk Road into the Indian subcontinent and up to the Caspian steppes and over to the Black Sea seemed fantastically implausible as Polo's descriptions of, um, of pepper consumption seemed to be to his, um, to his hearers and readers. Uh, pepper consumption, by the way, in Hengchow uh, was uh, close to 10,000 pounds a day. That's a lot of pepper. 
and the shipping traffic on the Yangtze River, uh, 200,000 vessels a year moving upstream and an equal number moving downstream. How could this possibly be, they wondered. Such mysteries were beyond fathoming. Uh, They were then, and they remain so to this day. Today, Central Asia seems to be an unpromising region of unstable and violent regimes, ill-versed in even the most basic components of settled civilization. It appears to be a region of failed and failing Uh, States led by brutal dictators and tribal barbarian religious fanatics. Uh, They are places uh, where uh, freedom of expression and conscience is severely limited, where political dissent and a free press are not tolerated, where women and children are sorely oppressed, uh, where hopes for upward mobility and material prosperity are smothered, and where all religious and cultural diversity is cruelly harried out of existence. To us, these lands are obscure wastelands. At, at best, uh, they are the incubators of global terror. Indeed, It is just as difficult for us to imagine a flourishing Central Asian culture in places like Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, the Emirates, uh, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, Oman, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait, as it was for Marco Polo's contemporaries to grasp the glories of the Mongol Empire. Kabul uh, ringed dozens of monasteries. Is it possible? Tikrit, Basra, and Mosul filled with churches. Uh, Tehran, Samarkand, and Kashgar with bishoprics hundreds of years before Canterbury. A thriving Jewish kingdom on the coast of southern Saudi Arabia. Is it possible? No, Uh, these things are unimaginable. But even a cursory review of the history of the world reminds us that it was there in Central Asia that nearly all of the great civilizations of the past first emerged. It was there that the first empires arose, that the great metropolises of the ancient world were first built. It was there that the first gardens, the first ziggurats, uh, the first thrusts into the sky, uh, the first bold defenses constructed, uh, lavish palaces and temples and shrines, all constructed. It was there that the languages and alphabets and oratory of the world first took shape. And as our daily headlines Uh, Military expenditures and foreign policy wrangling still attest. uh, Much of the fate of the world still hangs on this peculiar region. When Marco Polo first entered the court of Kublai Khan, Genghis Khan's grandson, he was warmly welcomed. He was uh, freely shown the resplendent wonders of the Mongol world. He quickly earned the emperor's trust, and he entered into the Mongolian diplomatic corps 
and traveled widely throughout the vast realm. Eventually, the emperor invited Polo to explain more clearly the Christian faith to him. He had rudiments of knowledge because Genghis Khan had married each of his sons off to Christian princesses. And so Kublai Khan was raised by a Christian mother. In the midst of all of his Mongol warrior training, he caught glimpses of the hope of the gospel. Now he wanted Polo to explain it more clearly to him. Apparently impressed, the emperor sent Polo back to the West, requesting 100 of the wisest men in the church to come and to preach and teach the gospel in the court. After the long and arduous journey home, Marco Polo dutifully delivered the request. He was even able to gain an audience in the papal court. He believed that this was perhaps the greatest open door for evangelism since the day of Pentecost. Can you imagine what the world would have looked like if the empire that stretched from the South China Sea to the Black Sea, from the Caspian steppes uh, down to the heart of the Indus Valley, if that had been one vast, thoroughly evangelized Christian land? Uh, Polo was thrilled at the prospect. His heart uh, thumped in his chest as he presented the possibility of this great open door. The Vatican was skeptical. Polo's stories sounded fanciful at best. Uh, more likely, he was mad. And the request was unheeded. The vast reach of the empire was by that time reported by many other merchants to be beyond anything that the Europeans had ever thought or imagined. And so 28 years later, a papal legate, a single papal legate, was dispatched to the court of the aging emperor. Just one man not a hundred. In any case, by that time, the Khan's interest had long before withered and waned. It's too late, he said. I've grown old in my idolatry. Now, this story is, uh, is often told at missions conferences. It's the great missed opportunity. And to some degree, it really was. Uh, we, we can look at it strategically and think to ourselves, oh, what were they thinking? And yet, there's a little bit of a twist to this story. You see, Kublai Khan was not altogether unaffected, either by his mother or by Marco Polo's vision of gospel liberty. As a result of his relationship with Polo, he determined to protect Christian churches and Christian missionaries all throughout the, the lands. And he enacted a policy, the first policy of religious toleration anywhere in the world in any empire in the world. For many years, that 
that held the Silk Road and the King's Highway and all of the traffic from the east to the west and back in the bonds of genuine peacefulness, a peacefulness that would be eventually swept away with Muslim conquests. But insufficient were the Muslim conquests to wipe out all of the progress that had been made despite the weak efforts of Polo and the few missionaries that made their way to the region. All of this story really became much more significant to me when I ran across a peculiar notation that Thomas Jefferson, after the War of 1812, when he decided that he needed to restock the Library of Congress, donated his personal library as the core of the new Library of Congress. And among the volumes were seven copies of a peculiar French novel about Genghis Khan, the Christian princesses, Kublai Khan, and religious liberty throughout the Mongol Empire. Uh, Jefferson, apparently, as a teenager, had gotten a hold of uh, the book, and it had so it inspired him to have a vision for a new kind of freedom and a new kind of land uh, where uh, toleration could be established and where those gospel principles that had seeded into Kublai Khan's worldview that might become the standard for a new nation of liberty. It's also interesting to me that following the footnote trail, I discovered that Thomas Jefferson, over the course of five years, gave that book to everyone on his Christmas list. He was regularly ordering them. They came over from uh, France. He, he, he bundled them up in a trunk the, the last time he was in France and brought them back and distributed them. It, it was, for him, a revelation. It's possible, through the application of the principles of liberty, from a faraway land that seems remote and full of barbarism, it's possible to apply a principle to allow the freedom to flourish in a new land and a new time. It's really an extraordinary story. But it shouldn't surprise us. The story is typically told as the story of a lost opportunity when in fact it's the story of a mustard seed. It's the story of not despising the day of small beginnings. It's a story uh, not of the possibility of a megachurch revival in the heart of the Mongol court, but rather uh, the slow seeding of the gospel across the generations uh, that would affect faraway lands and even a, um, a, a demi-enlightenment pagan like Thomas Jefferson. It's interesting, when Thomas Jefferson became president in the, uh, the f- famous Second American Revolution of 1800, he started going to church every Sunday. 
uh, walked over from the White House uh, to the old Supreme Court building where a Presbyterian church plant uh, was uh, just beginning in the Supreme Court chambers. Let's make that picture <laughs> real. It's really hard, but every single Sunday, and uh, that first Christmas in the White House, he gave every single member of his congregation a book about Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, religious freedom, and the transformation of cultures. It's a really remarkable story. It's a story that uh, reminds me so much of Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is a psalm uh, of the sons of Korah, uh, right along with uh, Psalm 24 and Psalm 48. Uh, it's, um, it's a registry of the nations. This is uh, uh, Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. For glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. And the singers and the dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Uh, the, um, the, the psalm is really divided into three parts. Uh, verses one through three uh, declares uh, the existence of God's remarkable, unexpected city. And verses four through six uh, declare the remarkable, unexpected inhabitants of this great city of God. And verse 7 celebrates uh, with uh, worship uh, the wonder of this assembled kingdom. There's, there's several unique things about this. Uh, first, notice that, that uh, the Lord loves this city that he has established uh, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, verse 2. Did you notice that? That's peculiar. God loves his kingdom more than the apple of his eye? More than the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God loves this, this hodgepodge of nations more than he loves all the households of Jacob. And then, notice this. All of the people that are mentioned that are in this glorious city of God, they're all enemies. These are all the bad guys. The first is, that's mentioned is Rahab. Uh, this is not Rahab the harlot. Uh, Rahab was uh, 
a, a name for a particular kind of deadly crocodile in the Nile River. It was the name that the people of Israel gave to Egypt. Uh, we see this in Isaiah chapter 30 and Isaiah 51 and Job chapter 9. Uh, so uh, among those who are gathered in this glorious city, the city of God, are the enemies, the Egyptians. And not just the Egyptians, uh, to them are added Babylon and Philistia and Tyre with Cush. And that's not all. They weren't illegal immigrants. They didn't crash the gates. There was no wall that kept them out. They streamed in. They're just as Isaiah prophesied. They streamed in to the mountain of the Lord. And then, you know what? They weren't just naturalized. They weren't just accommodated. FEMA didn't set up trailers for them. Uh, look what it says. This one was born there, they said. And of Zion, of this great great and glorious city, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. And the Lord himself records as he registers the people that this one was born there. This is a glorious picture, y'all. This is the gospel of the kingdom come to pass. If you are going to be a part of God's surprising kingdom work, then you're going to have to love the city of God like God does. You're going to have to love it more than the households of Jacob. You're going to have to go to the nations you're going to have to win our enemies. You're going to have to see them as God sees them. And you're going to have to draw your strength from him. That last verse. As, as we're celebrating this glorious ingathering of the nations, of every tribe and people and tongue, including all of the enemies of God, the people break out in worship and the singers and the dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. My refreshment comes from you. My thirst is slaked in you. All of our hopes and desires are realized in you. This is the great message of the kingdom. And this, despite the Vatican's Recalcitrance is what sowed seeds throughout the entire Mongol Empire and laid foundations that would shape the First Amendment of the Constitution. And the shaping of, of Virginia's Toleration Acts, which Thomas Jefferson uh, drew up because Kublai Khan's mama told him the stories of Jesus 
And Marco Polo stood in the court and explained it more clearly. We've got to take the long view. We've got to see things in light of the registry of the nations that God intends to bring in as he wins his enemies, as he declares to them, you are born here. You're meant to be here. You are always meant to be here. Let's sing, let's dance, for all of our springs are in you. This is a picture of blessing the nations. You know, in, um, in West Africa, it's, it's a glorious thing to have the word of God and the language of the people of the Ivory Coast. This, this is a glorious thing. And that then leads them to learn French, which apparently we're all going to be speaking soon. <laughs> C'est très bon. <sighs> Uh, but that, in turn, opens up a world of, uh, of knowledge and understanding so that someday, someday, in the Ivory Coast, they're going to be complaining about their ice makers. <laughs> As God brings a great wave across the whole of the earth to change everything. Uh, the great chant of King Alfred is one that declares the wonder of victory against all odds. I love it. When the enemy comes in roaring like a flood, coveting the kingdom and hungering for blood, the Lord will raise a standard up and lead his people on. The Lord of hosts will go before defeating every foe, defeating every foe. For the Lord is our defense, yea, defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yea, defend. Some men trust in chariots, some trust in the horse, but we will depend upon the name of Christ our Lord. The Lord has made my hands to war and my fingers to fight. The Lord lays low our enemies, but he raises us upright. He raises us upright. For the Lord is our defense, yea, defend us. For the Lord is our defense. Yes, you defend. A thousand fall on my left hand, 10,000 to the right, and yet we will depend upon the, uh, the, the Lord through the night. Fit us uh, in the midst of the great and fiery battle and send us forth, O Lord our God, uh, to uh, make the enemies prattle. For the Lord is our defense. Yes, you defend us. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu, defend. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That, that's why you know, we can look at all of the world and say, yep, we've got a lot of work to do. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your truth. Uh, send us forth, Lord, enable us to get to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat>